Welcome once again to All Rise, true stories from around the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. That lady is my good friend, Diane Godfrey. I'm Jordan Rich, local Boston area broadcaster and podcaster, and I really enjoy sitting down with Diane, meeting some of her amazing guests, and talking with her about cases. Now, before we get to today's case, Diane welcomes your comments, your questions. If you have a particular case you'd like us to talk about, please email her, allrisediane at gmail.com. We'd love Love to hear your feedback. We'd love to hear your reviews. Again, allrisediane at gmail.com. And today, a true crime case that'll make your, well, hair stand up on the back of your neck and uh, give you goosebumps. I remember the name James Cater, and we're going to learn a lot more about this infamous murderer and a case that uh, had a lot of moving parts, Diane. Jordan, there were so many moving parts to this story, I don't, don't even know where to begin, but I'm going to give it a try. The name of the poor young lady that was murdered, her name was Mary Lou Aruda. And you know, Jordan, just now when I walked in the studio, I said something to your co-worker. Yes. And right away, he re- everyone you talk to remembers this. This thing knocked Massachusetts on its rear end. Absolutely. And what was the year that we're talking? September of 78. Okay. Although her body wasn't found till mid-November of 78. All right. So we're going to get to who this guy Cater is, was, and, and how he operated. But right. let's talk about Mary Lou uh, and, and start in with what happened to her, I guess. Okay. Her name was Mary Lou Aruda, and this whole thing happened in her home. T- the, she was abducted in her hometown. It was, now Massachusetts is a tiny state, as you know. Mm-hmm. It happened in southeastern Mass off of Route I think 24, isn't it, Jordan? Yes, Going down tw- 24 would be there. It's a small lovely town. She lived there with her mother and father, Joanne and Adrienne. She had two brothers, and it was the beginning of the school year in September. What exact town was it again? Raynham, Massachusetts. Oh, Raynham. Raynham. Okay. Raynham. Gotcha. Now down near a bigger town called Taunton. Correct. Okay. So she was a 15-year-old girl mm-hmm. And it was the start of the school year. I think school started on a Wednesday, and I think she was abducted on that Friday, the third day into school. And I think with this case, Jordan, I came as close to the devil on this earth than I will ever get because I was the court reporter on what they call Cater 4. He had four trials, four. So this thing had a lot of twists and turns, as I said, But um, to start, I think I'm going to read you a minute or two just to set the stage. Wally Shea was the Bristol County District Attorney. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, when I was on the case years later, what they call Cater 4, they had moved it because they wanted, you know, things to be fair. And there was so much inflammatory feelings down in that part of Massachusetts. They moved it up to East Cambridge, Mass, in the county of Middlesex. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got involved in the case. So this is Mr. Shea to the jury in his opening statement in Superior Court up in East Cambridge. Good morning. When Mary Lou Arruda woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning, September 8, 1978, the time that she woke up most days, she had an awful lot to look forward to. She was a brand-new 15-year-old, having celebrated her birthday just two days before. She was the oldest child of Mr. and Mrs. Aruda, Joanne and Abe. She was a big sister to Tony and Joey and to the baby, Karen, 
I had forgotten that she had a sister, Karen. She was a good student. It was the beginning of the week, the 10th grade at Bridgewater Raynham High School. She was an athlete, and she wanted to be a physical therapist when she grew up. She learned to ride a bike. One of the things that she looked forward to later that day was to go to retrieve her bike that she had left at a neighbor's house the day before. Now, that's what happened. I remember they were on the school bus after school. She bypassed her stop. She did not get off where she should have, you know, Mm -hmm. to get home. I remember the testimony was she gave her books to her older brother and said, I'll be home. I'm going to get my bicycle. And I believe her friend's name was Josie Oliveri. She went down to Josie's house, and she grabbed her 10-speed. How 70s was that, 10-speed? Right. Orange, mind you. Of course. They kept that all those years. It came in as evidence. They brought the the bike right into the courtroom. But anyway, um, she went to Josie's house. I think Josie was watching like a soap opera or something. They talked. And another kid showed up, another neighborhood kid, and he was a newspaper um, paper boy. You don't even hear that anymore. Who the heck delivers papers? But how innocent they all were. He passed out lollipops, and they talked, and they ate lollipops. Can you how innocent, mm. really? So I think she had her lollipop when she was abducted. They found a lollipop stick near mm. her bike. But anyway, she said bye to Josie and said, I'll see you. They were cheerleaders. I'll see you later tonight at practice. She took off on her bike, and unfortunately for her, on her way home, there was a strip of kind of secluded street. And she was walking down, but actually she ran into a friend, and they stopped. I think her name was Helena McCoy. And they talked, you know, innocently, and she said bye. She was abducted. And exactly how it happened, naturally no one saw it. But her bike was found there by the paper boy a little bit wa- a little later when he was on his paper route. He came upon the bike. I remember the testimony was he shouted out for her name. He was mystified where she could have been. The bike was just on the ground. He picked it up, and he walked with his newspapers. And then when he got to the Aruda home, he just placed it on the side of the house, thinking maybe she was in the house. He never mm-hmm. knocked on the door. He just right. kind of left the bike there, mm-hmm. and off he went. So the next thing that happened, you know, time went by and a little bit of time went by and they noticed she was missing. So they're all looking for her, like, where's Mary Lou? Where's Mary Lou? They finally got a hold of the paper boy and he said, we found this bike, her bike. I found her bike when I was walking on my paper route and I just left it on the side of the house. Well, the mother called the police. She was frantic naturally. But, you know, I am stepping ahead, but I have to tell you, in retrospect, The mother was sitting at the front window. She saw that car go by. The car that we're going to find out belonged to the perpetrator. The bright, bright green car that looked like a mint julep color. Mm -hmm. I mean, and she remembers the racing stripe on the side of it, the black racing stripe. Her daughter was in that car. It's Mm. just so heartbreaking. Mm, That's just amazing. But, you know, I have to just, one thing I left out, when the two girls came together... Just, you know, they want, they were going opposite ways, and they stopped right before she was abducted. The girl that was not abducted, Helena McCoy, ended up telling the police that as they stood there, they saw two odd things. They saw a blue car 
go back and forth with a man in it with a baseball cap and saw a bright green car with a black racing stripe go by them twice. He had eyeglasses and curly hair. So that becomes important because they did come part. Now, this is before DNA. This is before there was a camera on the side of every house and building. But um, what happened was they did a compo two composites. We're looking for these two men. Well, the man in the blue car, can you imagine this, Jordan? Turns out he was exonerated. He was, you know, he was innocent. He was going to get feed for either his dog or his horse. He lived on a farm. So just happened to be there and uh, was immediately considered a suspect because yes. they announced that they remembered him. The one in the green lime car, however, lime green car, he is the one of that we have person now of interest, but of he interest. wasn't a person of interest yet. Now, mind you, this poor guy in the blue car, I can't remember the exact, this has been a lot of years and some things are as clear as a bell, but I remember his test, the testimony, he came on the stand. He was like with his buddies after work a week later and he's like in a bar and he's having fun and all of a sudden like he sees his composite like on the news or something. Hmm. And it was clearly him, the car and the in the location. He's like, oh, my goodness. And he hopped in the car and went right to the police station. And they realized it was not him hmm. involved. Mm -hmm. But he was freaked out. So if I can ask a question, at this point, uh, the police are now starting the search for Mary Lou? Is they went it? on a crazy search. They And you know what? There was another woman. She was a neighbor. She ended up driving by Mary Lou in that spot and kind of waved to her. So, and after this happened, people started to come out of the woodwork. There was another mother. She was on her way to either pick someone up or something, and she saw a man with, you know, black, you know, eyeglasses and curly hair in a bright, bright green car, almost cut her off. He pulled out of somewhere, and she took note of it. She's like, whoa, what's that? So even though it was so-called secluded, it wasn't that busy an area, a lot of people had a lot of visual yes. contact with what turned out to be the prime suspect. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to say that the name of the street that Mary Lou was abducted on was Dean Street, and the portion of Dean Street where she was abducted was a dirt road. It wasn't a dirt road, but that small portion where she was, it was kind of a secluded little portion of the road. So they, they looked for her. It was a nightmare, needless to say. And Jordan, can I tell you something? That Aruda family, the way that they conducted themselves in the back of that courtroom, what class acts lovely people. And Jordan, you can't put a limit on like grief. If you ever saw the grief in this woman's body, like she exuded, I can't, there's no mm. words to tell yeah. you the grief yeah. of this poor mother. I've never seen it. It has stayed with me for years. And uh, it, 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 for those of you who are listening in the New England area and you're of a certain age, you know the name Mary Lou Aruda and you know the name James Cater, this is one of the most celebrated cases. We haven't just scratched the surface yet, but um, how long was she, was she actually missing, and when and how was she discovered? Well, she was missing for two whole months. Can you imagine the torment mm. of that family? Was there ever a phone call made, a ransom request, or any? Nothing. Nothing, okay. Although... Now it's like November 11th, fast forward November 11th, Freetown State Forest. It's about 
I think it's 18 miles from Raynham. Mm-hmm. Two kids out in, on dirt bikes. One kid kind of looks, and he sees. You know what? They thought it was a Halloween prank because Halloween had just passed. Yes. They weren't even going to explore it further. They went close to what they thought may be a prank, and it was her tied to a tree. And I do remember the testimony, the sick individual. I'm going to watch my language here. I want to call them worse things, but okay. they, this, whoever left her there, which it turned out to be Cater, took all her personal effects and made methodically a semicircle around the front of the tree, her handbag and her different things he put put all around. Some kind of odd, bizarre ritual that a sadistic killer. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now, was she clad or was she wearing clothes? The body had to have been decomposed by that. Yes, anyway. but you know what? He had he had taken a bedspread. I'm not sure it was a bedspread. I I thought it was um, it was twine or a bedspread. But whatever he did, he it the. I should just say that the cause of death was strangulation. So okay. after he tied her neck around the tree, he strangled her, and, and her head slumped forward, according to the ME, the medical examiner. And as two months went by, her head fell off her body. So oh. her head was found by the body. Oh, my god. By gosh. her personal effects that were perfectly hmm. put in a circle, semicircle. We're talking about a gruesome case. Was she sexually assaulted as well? It turns out he tried to but was unsuccessful. Hmm. That says a lot, doesn't it, about this individual. So here you are, November, and they discover the body. Horrific discovery. I'm sure those kids were traumatized at at some point. And uh, take us from from that point where the investigation really takes off. What's going on? Okay. So she's found, and they ended up getting – now, there's no DNA, obviously, but – they end up – I do know that when they went to back, the paper boy told the cops right away where they found, you know, where he found the orange 10-speed. They found the lollipop stick. They found Benson and Hedge's cigarette butts scattered about. And the most telling thing was footprints and in the side, the shoulder of the road, tire track impressions. But it was – a unique t- they were unique tire track impressions they weren't typical which bodes well for the you know investigation well you even described a car earlier that was seen at the uh, at the crime scene and that car didn't sound typical in terms of color and style by the way i saw the car they kept it all those years now remember yeah. i was on the fourth trial this guy was tried four times well let's let's do this before we get to the right, trial that you were on so how was that possible? He's tried for, for similar crimes or what? Jordan, it snaked its way through the judicial system for 18 years. And when it was all said and done and finally put to bed, 22 years had passed. She would have been like 30 years old by the time he was convicted for good. Mm. Um, I can just tell you, Cater, one, he was convicted, life without the possibility of parole of kidnapping and murder, one. This was the first time. Yes. Okay. And um, same with the second trial. The third trial, it was a hung jury. They retried it, and that's where I came in. And that's when they moved the trial out of Bristol County up to 
right near Boston to the city of Cambridge. So, Diane, it's, you are there through this entire proceeding in, in Cater 4. Um, it sounds to me as though there was pretty good evidence to convict somebody of this nature. Did did they have enough evidence or was it just enough circumstantial evidence, uh, enough? Jordan, I have to tell you. First of all, his lawyer was Joe Krowski. I love Joe Krowski. I consider him a good friend. I think he's the most fun guy going. I think he's a tremendous lawyer. But I have when I did this trial, I knew who Joe was. I wasn't really friends with him yet. But I have to tell you, to this day, I have invited him on this podcast, and he's all for it. The only reason he hasn't been on yet is he's out straight busy. But I want him to come on because I said to him, Joe, I love you. You're my friend. But here's where we part company. This guy was the closest thing to evil that I have ever encountered. And he said to me, there's a lot of things you don't understand about this case, Diane, a lot of things that the judge ruled that couldn't come in. He is innocent. Now, Joe has no reason to still defend him because Cater is dead. He died in prison in 2016. Mm -hmm. But I still invite Joe to come on, and I think it would be fruitful because from what I saw as a layperson on this case and how Joe sees it to this day, I think it would be really interesting be to hear a defense lawyer. Yeah. He really wholeheartedly believes that this piece of dirt, junk, human being, poor excuse for a human being, is innocent. Well, let's do this. Can you describe the cater that you saw and also his life, his background, what we knew about him in trial for? Okay. He was born in... 1944 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. As I said, Massachusetts is the size of a postage stamp. So you have to understand, if you're not from here, if you get out the Rand McNally, Lawrence is north. And you'd say to yourself, what the heck was he doing way down 72 miles away in, north, in southeastern Mass in Raynham? Guess what? He was getting outpatient treatment at what they call, when you just, around here, if you say Bridgewater, everyone knows what it means. State hospital. At the Sex, for the sexually, sexually dangerous. dangerous, right. So he had a past. So that's what brought him down there. And, you know, when they first had him as a person of interest, he ended up, first of all, he, he was a Dunkin' Donut manager, mind you, in Brockton. He was a manager of a Dunkin' Donut, and he married an 18-year-old employee the day after he committed this murder. Mm. And then he fled the state. I don't know where he went on his honeymoon. Um, when he murdered her, he came back from his honeymoon and somehow got wind that they were looking for him. And of his own volition, he went to the police station. Get this. I was just telling my colleague outside of the door there when, we were waiting to come, when I was waiting to come in. He goes to the police station. He has an alibi, which none of it ended up measuring up. But anyway... He goes in there, and they said, can we – have you ever been down to Raynham? Nope. Never? Nope. Come to find out, he had had a girlfriend who later testified that they had an ice cream spot they used to go to all the time and have ice cream. And then somehow they figured out that he went to some dealership down there on Route 44. and Car the, dealership. Car dealership. Right. And the, guy, the car guy said something like, I remember that weirdo. We had that god-awful, ugly car. He came in, he was strange, and he had some sort of a donut shop outfit on. Hmm. So, like, he was lying. All the pieces start to come together. So he was having treatment 
down in that area. That's why he was familiar with the area. Well, he has a past, and I can tell you about his past. Sure. Share with us, please. Get this. First of all, okay, so he's born in 44 at the tender age of 22. This is 1968. Mm -hmm. Why he wasn't over in Vietnam, I don't know. But anyway, he goes about ten a 10-minute 10 ride from his hometown, which was Lawrence, Mass., to North Andover. Now, we both know Jordan. North Andover is beautiful. It's an upscale town. Absolutely. Right. And in 1968, was there ever a hint of a crime in North Andover? I don't think so. This 13-year-old girl, now don't get confused. I am not speaking at this point about the victim who got murdered, Mary Lou Arruda. I'm speaking of a whole different human being. Backtrack to 1968, Cater goes to North Andover, he's in his car, textbook, same thing. A 13-year-old girl is walking at 10-speed, middle of the afternoon, broad daylight, stops his car, leaves the driver's door open. How do we all know this? This victim survived. But anyway, opens the door and says something to her like, I need directions to blah, blah, blah. She steps forward innocently and starts to tell him how to get there. He puts his hand over her mouth, throws her in the car, keeps her on the floor of the passenger side, drives 30 minutes to some local forest, forces her out of the car, marches her into the woods. He's behind her, and you know what he does? Takes a tire iron and splits the back of her head open as they're walking. She survived? Oh, yeah. Jordan, yeah. it's better. She came on the stand and told the My mouth was like... Oh, my God. I, I've never seen such unbelievable this is, testimony. This is the Cater 4 trial. You're doing the court reporting, and they bring her on as a, as a witness yeah, for she, the prosecution. And she had never been on before. So that's a good question. Did they not know of her existence or that crime? Or Oh, they knew. They knew. Once. The problem is there were four trials— and when he was convicted, I think they talked about it, but she had this this surviving victim had never actually come onto the stand. At this point, she's well into her 30s. She's happily married. They flew her up from where she lived now, somewhere in the north, like the mid-Atlantic states. She had kids. She came up. She got on the stand. She had this huge mop of blonde hair, beautiful hair. And you know what? James Cater picked the wrong girl to mess with because she was not intimidated by him. She wasn't afraid of him. She was in survival mode. And they said to her, are you traumatized from this, the way you live your life now? She said, absolutely not. Huh. She said, How dare he? Like, she was indignant. But I'll tell you, she was feisty and she fought and she lived because he, now he gets her out of the car in a wooded area where yeah. no one else is around. Right. She's walking ahead of him. He, he hits her over the head with a tire iron and her poor, oh, my God, you should have seen the scar. The best was when she w was allowed to come off the witness stand. She puts her head forward, takes her hands, parts her big mop of hair, and there was a scar like five inches. Where her and hair she's never feet grew away from him. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Is she staring him down as opposed to the other way around? Yeah, but you know what? I'm telling you, he met his match with her. Because I was so proud of her. I never wanted to stand up and cheer. Yeah. I was trying to, like, I was trying to be composed. Let's but hear it for yes, the victims. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So listen to what happens. He knocks her over the head with this 
you know, he breaks her head open. He was trying to drown her. So he takes his hand and he puts her face head first under the water in the stream. And she said on the stand, I knew I was going to die. I had to do something. You know what she did? Smart girl. Reaches up, grabs his eyeglasses off his face and threw them as far as she could. He couldn't see well. That broke the grip. She ran like crazy. Ran after being whacked with a tire iron. Oh, so yeah. Oh, she, yeah. She might have been uh, concussed at that point, but who knows? Uh, just amazing. She was a mess, by the way. So this is 1968, and he is – is he arrested at the, some point for I that? have to finish what happened in the – Oh. There's more. I'm so excited. Wait, I'm on the edge more. of my seat. I know. I'm not making fun of this. This is the most no, 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 vile, no. despicable no. thing that ever I ever, ever have encountered in my life and never will. So anyway – she breaks free, and she's running through the woods. Unfortunately, he finally catches up to her, puts her back in the vehicle, and drives her deeper into the woods. Mm. Then he decides, in his infinite wisdom, that he's going to tie her to a tree. Sounds so familiar. Does. Sounds yes. familiar. He strangles her when she's on the tree. He has a, a something around her neck. He tied her, you know, mm-hmm. she's totally on the tree, but he put some sort of, I don't know if it was twine. I think this was the bedspread. Okay. She got the bedspread, I think. And now she's on the tree. She passes out. He thinks she's dead and he leaves. Some time goes by and she comes too. She wiggled and wiggled and got herself free of that tree. Now she's got to get out of the forest. Jordan, she starts running and running. She eventually comes to like a neighborhood that, you know, was on the edge of the forest. There's a poor middle-aged woman on her hands and knees tending to her garden with like a trowel. She turns and there is this poor girl, bloodshot eyes, bleeding from everywhere. Her clothes are in shreds, her head split open. She's a mess. That is how she lived. That's, she made it. So, my question then is what happens after that in 68? Is he— He a, pled guilty. He, he did a measly six or seven years in Waffle okay, Prison. Okay. Gets out. He's still a young man now. He gets out of prison. Two years later, textbook, same thing to Mary Lou Arruda. Mm. The system failed somewhere. Talk about the experience. You said it at the beginning of this podcast, and I know this is even tough for you to recall— not recall, but to tell the story again— You say watching this man in that seat, just looking at him and examining his eyes and examining his demeanor, you felt the presence of evil. Jordan, you know how you're not supposed to do something? I couldn't help it. You know what I did? And I know no one, the people listening right now will not see me do this, but I'm going to try to convey it. Maybe you can help me out. I went like this to him. I looked him straight in the eye and he went like this back to me. So you did a staring, you know stare what? down. He won. It was the most evil thing, yeah. diabolical oh thing. God. He was probably decide, thinking to himself, hmm, this one, I'd, I'd love to chop her up somehow. Wow. He's probably fantasizing how he could kill me. I don't know. Now, did he have an alibi? Obviously, he skated through various trials. But what was his alibi when you got to the scene? He had an alibi. Of course he did. But you know what? It had more holes in it than a piece of Swiss cheese. And hmm. I'll outline what happened. When he went to the police station, they said, can we come out? And look at your car. And he said, yes. They found two cases of Benson and Hedges cigarettes. Now, mind you, they found Benson and Hedges, you know, at the scene. Someone had been smoking Benson Benson and Hedges where the bicycle was found. Mm. Number two, when they opened up the trunk, 
the two big newspapers in Boston at the time, the Herald American and the Globe. He has a copy of each dated two days after the murder. And they're open to the Aruda case. They were under his luggage. So what they say about serial killers and and killers in general, that they want a trophy or they want uh, notoriety, sure sounds like that was the case. Evidently. And um, the next day, he ended up having his car fixed. And they even had the mechanic come on. And they said he had been driving around. It was a ball bearing problem. That's what made that tire track so unique. Well, unique. There's not any... Uh, So you didn't have DNA at the time. No. I imagine there were no fingerprints or... In, in the woods or were there? Not in the woods, but they had at the scene where she was abducted. Believe it or not, the FBI expert that came on, he was a tire track expert and a footprint expert. And he opined that that was tied to James Cato's mm-hmm. car. He ended up in the um, testifying on footprint impressions in the O.J. Simpson case. It was the same, wow. the same FBI so agent. So what, what do you recall about the defense's main arguments. I mean, it's not easy to defend someone of this nature. Okay. In that forest, there had been multiple um, sightings, supposedly, of UFOs and satanic cult stuff. Uh. At one point, they found a large um, cross in the the, um, forest with some other effects. And that becomes pertinent because the, fi- the um, police officer made a photo of it but did not touch it at the time. They didn't pursue it because they thought it was it was a mile from where she was found. And there was no connecting um, paths in the forest to where her body was found. So they discounted it. But at one time when when Cater did an appeal, I forget which, which, which you know, in the Cater 1, Cater 2, or Cater 3, he ended up saying that they um, should have— I forget, with something to do with they didn't pursue it enough or whatever. That it was a lead that they ignored, that kind of thing? Or something like, um, I can't, I don't want to misstate it, but it might have been something like um, they should have kept the evidence. But in it, but the the ruling from the court was it wasn't evidence. The police never touched it. So it wasn't incumbent upon them to mm. retain it. So it was a crazy thing. Wow. And also, another part of this case I didn't tell you about is after this whole thing came to light that she had been abducted, they hypnotized a lot of the witnesses that had seen this car to try to, you know, get more information. And that that was his, like, um, you know, it had some traction to get another trial. To be- say that this is mumbo-jumbo and yes. this is not uh, something that we can take seriously, to this Lori's But the best charge. is... Two, there's two coincidences, and then I'll tell you the alibi. The coincidences are right near nine-tenths of a mile from Freetown State Forest at 4.30 that day. He came to like a four-way stop. As luck would have it, somebody that was kind of friendly with him saw him. Like, you know how you come to a stop? Mm-hmm. And the guy testified. He said, wow, that was Jimmy Cada. I just went by him. What's he doing down here? And the guy was coming home from work and just drove away. He thought nothing of it. But when this all happened, he recalled seeing him in the vicinity at the right time near that forest. Mm-hmm. Number two, there were two women that were coming in and out. of. They were unloading their car at like an American Legion. They looked across the street, and there was a bright green opal with a racing stripe sitting there. And one of the women paused for a minute. She thought it might have been someone she knew. That's why she gave it, you know, thought. 
And then she said, oh, that's not so-and-so. And they kept unloading the car because they were having some sort of an event there. I think it was a christening or a baby shower or something. So he was down in that area. But the best is the alibi. Get this, Jordan. He told the police that he went to pick up dry cleaning at Anton's Cleaners. He never stopped there because it was too busy and he couldn't get a parking space. According to the Anton cleaner people, they testified or gave a statement. I can't remember if they actually came on the stand. They, they probably did. They said, at that time of day, it's dead. They said he never came in there. He, never, he, he, he could have gotten his cleaning lickety-split. It was dead mm-hmm. at that time of day. There's number one. He says that he went into a Friendly's sandwich shop at 4.15 p.m. And for those of you not familiar with Friendly's, it's just that, a sandwich shop and an ice cream shop. He was a regular there. They got the manager to come on the stand, and she said he had a nickname. They called him behind his back, Coffee Man, because he never ate. He just drank coffee. She says she remembers distinctly that he was never there that day because a week earlier he had been in Friendly's, and he did something to one of the employees. He said something like sexual, off-color, and kind of, I think he might, I don't know if he actually grabbed her, but it put the employee in fear. And the manager was waiting for him and knew he'd be in because he always came in. He never ate. He told the police, James Cater, I had a coffee and a sandwich. He never ordered a sandwich in there ever. Then he says he was at Bradley's department store buying a wedding gift, a blouse for his wife as they were going to get married the next day. This is at 5.45 p.m. Now, let's think back to 78. Remember the cash registers? Of course. It's not like now. I mean, you know, Hmm. but this is how they disprove that. The cat, it was primitive by today's standards, but they got the, the slip. He still had the Bradley slipped, but the thing was, there was no time on it, but it had the cashier number on it. The cashier never punched in and got to work till like 6.30 p.m. that night. Got him. That now, the best is, he said he was going on his honeymoon the next day, so he went back to his store that he managed, the Dunkin' Donuts, at 6.15 p.m. to just say, you know, last minute check of things and have a, you know, see you next week. The people that work at that Duncan said he never showed up till seven. But here's the most telling thing. I don't know if he was stumata, as they say in Italian. He had an appointment with a man. The man had said to him, I'm coming at like five o'clock to your house to deliver your sofa. The man couldn't lift the sofa alone. So he went in the house and sat with James Cater's girlfriend till I think 7.30 at night, looking for, waiting for him. And he kept saying, I have to get the sofa off my truck. I can't lift it alone. He waited over two hours for him, and Cater never showed up. He finally went outside, and like a neighbor was walking by, a young guy, and he said, can you just give me a hand? He said he was so disgusted, you know, with J- James Cater never called. He and the guy, you know, the guy walking by. They took the sofa. He said, I just plunked it on the sidewalk in front of his house and drove away. So Lots of holes in his argument. Uh, What was his reaction when the verdict, the guilty verdict was handed down? 
If he had a strong reaction, I clearly would have remembered. But I know he got convicted of um, first-degree murder and kidnapping, life without the possibility of parole. And what about the family and the victim statements and things like that? Do you recall those? You know, Jordan, I don't. I just know that they were the loveliest people mm. that you can ever imagine. So he died in prison of cancer. Uh, and, uh, 2016. 2016. So he is no longer a threat to anyone, but it still stays with you, this uh, case. What about uh, remembering the victim in her community? This is awesome. There's a soccer field in Raynham, Massachusetts named after her. And I don't know how it came about, but there's now a yearly day. It's like a tribute to her. I think it's called like Child Safety Awareness mm-hmm. Day. And I guess they fingerprint every kid in the town. And, you know, it's just a it's a day to, you know, remember her. Remember her, and make, honor her memory. Make everybody safer. Like, a, but, yeah. in, in this case, it would, took four times... But he was finally put down. Uh, does does that make you feel? Does that exonerate the system in your opinion, or should they have been more? I think they followed intent? the law, and that just just goes to show in this country how many rights we have. There's a lot of legal legalese, and if you have any interest, I'm sure you could look it up. But I know that. Um, all these appeals, and then the third K to three, as it was referred to, that was a hung jury. So he almost got off. Mm. But um, after this was all adjudicated, said and done, and he was going to get, there was zero chance. He hit a dead end. You know what he did? He appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States and asked them if he could be heard. I can't never say this word. I can't get it around my tongue. Certiori. Mm-hmm. That was a certiori motion, I believe. Denied. Yeah, no, I, I can't see any any court, supreme or otherwise, giving this man yep. at, at this point with all the chances that he had. Uh, so he never uh, issued a statement of regret or apology? you kidding apology. me. He maintained his innocence. So the day he died, she it's, – it's unbelievable that a young, healthy girl did not die of natural cause, causes. She died at the hand of a sick stranger. And as a court reporter aside, I'm going to tell you this. This was early on in my career, and I think it might have been my first murder. It's a big deal to be able to work on a murder, but this was over in Middlesex, and I was assigned the case. I went in one day. We started the case, and the next morning when I went into the court, all my equipment, court reporting equipment, was not on the court reporter desk. It was on a side table, and it was in a big tangled heap. And, you know, there's any court reporter in the world listening to this. There is a rule. You never touch anyone's equipment, ever, ever, ever. It's not very—court reporting equipment is extremely expensive. It's wires and cord. It's so sensitive. No, You just don't do that to another court reporter unless they ask you. You know, they'll, if they're out sick and they'll say, will you please, like, pack up my machine or whatever. So I couldn't understand it. I'm standing in this courtroom. I'm the first one there. And there's, it's a mumbo-jumbo. I'm like, what mm. the hell? There's a court reporter. I'm not going to mention her name, but we all know her in Massachusetts. Aggressive. Evidently. We used to bid every month. You'd bid for what case you wanted or what. She bid for a civil case that was going to be very lucrative, like it was going to be a daily copy. She'd make a small fortune on it from the lawyers. She'd prepare the trial testimony every night. Next day, give it to the lawyers. She'd make a bundle. 
She starts on that case, and they, the lawyers settled the case on, like, day two. <laughs> so now she wants this hotshot big murder case. She just went and took my stuff because she was a state worker, and I wasn't on the payroll yet, and she was senior to me. So I called Boston to the lady. I called her the air traffic controller. She'd make sure there was a court reporter mm-hmm. statewide in every courtroom. And do you know, for once— I got to stay on that trial, and they did the right thing, you know, and they let me stay, but she was livid. I couldn't believe she did that. A look behind the scenes. Oh, you can't believe when it became, when we'd have what they call daily copy, you can't believe all the infighting with court reporters. (laughs) We'll have to do a podcast uh, on what goes on behind the scenes. And I love them all. I love all the court reporters I worked with, but Jordan, there would be cat fights over someone thinks would think that this one got a better courtroom or a better trial, or you're you're shopping around for this and you're a money hungry. Gr- oh, it, it 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 was endless. Well, I must say, in this particular episode, uh, I think you've done more prep than in previous ones in terms of paperwork and documentation, because it was such an important trial, and it was, by the way, covered nationally too. If I'm not mistaken, there oh, were, I'm sure it was. There were sure. media reports all over the country about this one. How despicable! First of all, I send my condolences to that family. And, you know, Jordan, it hit home with me. I had a 10-speed in the 70s. Like, you're just walking along and you're plucked out of thin air. The injustice and the the horror of it is just mind-blowing. But if there is any solace, it is that he did finally meet his justice when we took him off the streets. Not soon enough. Well, thank you for a report and a story that will chill people, but also uh, remind them this is how the system has to work. Well, this has been an incredible story, an incredible saga. Is there anything additionally you'd like to add, Diane? Well, you know, Jordan, I can't get my mind around the fact that he had prior bad acts, and I can't believe this guy was out on the streets of Massachusetts. I already shared with you what he did to that poor woman that Mm -hmm. survived Mm -hmm. up in Andover, Mass., where he knocked her over the head with the tire iron that. But in addition to that, he did a crazy thing. Around that time, he went into a cemetery. He approached a woman that was at her husband's grave, and he took he had a, um, the leg of a chair in his hand, and he whacked the lady with it and tried to assault her. And mm-hmm. he was un you know, unsuccessful. And secondly, there was also another incident he was involved with was he ran a female in her vehicle off the road and tried to abduct her. So this was a really dangerous guy that was just running awry. Talk about true crime. This is probably the greatest example of true crime. It's real and it's so scary. And there's one other thing that really hit home with me in this trial as I sat there. I forgot to share with you. All of a sudden, one day during the trial, the prosecutors came in, well, people from their office, carrying the actual tree that Mary Lou had hung from. They had saved it for 25 years. And when it got up to the front of the courtroom, I was like shocked. It was such a graphic piece of evidence. It was encased in her blood. There was blood all over it. And all I could think of was Abraham Lincoln. Remember at the Ford Theater when they bring you in mm. to see the coat that he got shot in? Yes. All these years later, his blood is on the coat. 
That's all I could think of as I looked at the tree, that her blood survived 25 years. And it was just the saddest thing to see this big, huge tree they cut down and lugged it all the way into the Cambridge, Massachusetts courtroom. And you know what, Jordan? I still want Joe Krauske, if he is so inclined, I still extend the invitation to him. There's no reason to think he won't come on. The only thing that's holding him back is he's out straight with work. I would love Joe to come on and tell me the flip side of how he sees this case. He's welcome anytime, right? Yes, right. absolutely. Thank you, Diane. You're welcome. Bye-bye. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.